whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. This is the penultimate episode of season two. Please join me next week for one more conversation. As you know by now, in each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-ups are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Yes, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm Miranda Fricker. I'm in the philosophy department at CUNY Graduate Centre, where I joined in 2016. And before that, I was at the University of Sheffield in the UK and Birkbeck College, London. I work mainly in social epistemology, moral philosophy, and feminist philosophy. And I, I guess I'd say I find myself repeatedly drawn to the border territories of those subject areas, thinking about the overlap between ethics and epistemology and the kinds of relations of power and identity that feminism has always explored. So I'm going to ask you one question about your work that you probably are asked versions of, or at least it must, it must be on people's minds, which is you, you coined the concept epistemic injustice in a book that went on to be, I think, sort of pretty amazingly influential. Were you surprised by that? Like, what's your sort of response to the way in which that concept has caught on? Maybe you should also just, do you have a one-line introduction to it for people who might not know what epistemic injustice is? Yes. So one-line introduction, the concept of epistemic injustice, as, as I defined it, is an idea that there's a completely distinctive kind of injustice that we can do to each other, where we undermine someone specifically in their capacity as a knower or an epistemic subject. And I was trying to show that the issues of power and prejudice that have been explored in connection with rationality and knowledge in all sorts of ways, by all sorts of different people in different traditions, had one version that was specifically the proper business of social epistemology, whereas social epistemology, it seemed to me, had really ignored it. So it was a really a very specific sort of project I was engaged in. And to answer your question, in that sense, really, I, I'm completely amazed and delighted by how it's taken off and people are taking it in their own directions and connecting it up with things that others had done before, which I might cast as kind of less specifically just social epistemological, but the connecting the social epistemological ambition I had with broader political philosophical ambitions is all great. And it kind of amazes me. But I think one of the one of the things I was really trying to do in that book was just to give a very straightforward, usable couple of definitions or introductions of terms for phenomena that I take it everybody very readily recognizes, for instance, somebody receiving less credibility than they otherwise would have because there's prejudice in the air. So a woman not being believed because she's a woman, someone not being believed or not being taken as seriously as they might be because of the color of their skin or because of their accent or whatever it may be. And I think that's a completely obvious thing that everybody's always known has happened. But specifically in analytic epistemology, social epistemology, as it was sort of coming to be called around the time that I was a graduate student, 
there just wasn't really a way of articulating it. It seemed like, well, that must be more like continental philosophy then or sociology of knowledge. And and certainly, although I was incredibly well supported, I would say, by my teachers when I was a graduate student, I did find it extremely hard to explain to people what I was working on because there just wasn't really a name for it. And that was just, you know, a lacuna in social epistemology. I think we might come back later to the sort of nature of philosophy and, and how it makes progress. But before we do that, I'm going to ask you the the first official question inspired by Iris Murdoch, who begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? Yes, that's such a lovely piece of Murdoch, isn't it? It's so true that philosophers' temperaments will almost always express themselves in their work. And, you know, that insight can be used in a way that one presumes is transparent to the philosopher. In a way, you're asking me that question presumes that I'll have the slightest idea about how my temperament is expressed in my philosophy. And of course, I might have no idea about that, but I'm sure it is. Murdoch gives us a diagnostic tool to use on others, even if we're not very capable of using it on ourselves. And I think it's a really good reminder to those of a very analytic mindset that philosophy is authored. And in a way, it's a feature of the analytic philosophical style that there's a great deal of self-effacement involved in the posture of impartiality and objectivity and so on, which I'm not criticizing. I think actually it's very useful posture in lots of ways, but not if it encourages the kind of fantasy of non-presence, of non-authorship, of ahistoricism. And I think in the past that has been a real problem that's plagued analytic philosophy and it's part of the problem that made feminism seem uh, like a discourse that could not be inserted into an analytic way of doing things. In a way, if there's one insight of feminist philosophy that sort of moved me most in the early days was the thought that, you know, philosophy is a text. It's got authors and it's got actual readers and it's got implied readers. And this is a very revolutionary thought within analytic philosophy. So there we go. Now I'm avoiding your question, aren't I? Uh (laughs) How is is my temperament, how do I think? I don't presume this is transparent to me, but I, I think if my temperament's expressed in my work, which I'm sure it must be, an interest Well, a a sort of love of human personality. I like human personality. When I was first a student, I did philosophy and French literature. I mean, and language, but it's the love of personality, the love of protagonists, the love of human drama, the love of human failings that makes me sometimes bored with philosophy and want to go back to literature, but also makes me think philosophy can be more, more insightful about human personality and human society and certainly the work obviously the work on epistemic injustice was like that I mean I tried in that book to respect and draw in other kinds of texts I have these long chunks of memoir of novel of film screenplay and I hoped though philosophers never read books in this way, but anyone with a sort of literary background would notice that there's very different sorts of texts which are quoted at enormous length and imported in. And that was a kind of, you know, shortcut way of importing some brilliant writing by novelists like Edmund White and so on, where the love of human personality and human drama and human pain is there to inspire the philosophy and for the philosophy to learn from it, rather than importing dead and obvious illustrations of philosophical point already made, I tried to have the philosophy learn from 
the interpretation of these other people's texts. And so I, I think that that method does express my temperament and my kind of uh, most basic sense of ambivalence about philosophy and its limitations, but also my hopes for philosophy. Maybe I can ask you about models for your work as a philosopher and writer in a slightly different mode with question two. Who was your most inspiring teacher? Yes, I'd, I'd really like to say something about at least four people who've taught me at different times. Sure. I feel like one receives different gifts from people and situations as one goes through life. And it's a good thing to kind of, it's it's a nice thing to have the opportunity to articulate them. And actually, I first teacher I'd like to mention who gave me actually a, a, a great gift, and it connects with this relationship between literature and philosophy that we've already been talking about. I was an undergraduate. And as one of my French papers, I picked uh, Montaigne and Pascal. And I was farmed out to a tutor at another college who turned out to be, you know, world, fantastic world expert on these authors and also on Diderot and other things, Terence Cave. I was at Oxford as an undergraduate and he was at St. John's, which wasn't my college. And I toddled along and I had tutorials on my own with him. And I had been doing my undergraduate degree, which meant some philosophy papers as it were, unconnected with anything French, and some French language and literature papers unconnected with anything philosophical. But doing Montaigne and Pascal, obviously, two philosophers, though of course not analytic philosophers of the kind I'd been studying in my philosophy part of my degree, was a wonderful liberation for me because I liked doing two things. I liked arguing and thinking about concepts, not really arguing with people. I actually hate arguing with people, but framing arguments and framing concepts and going for a certain kind of analytic precision that one finds very satisfying. But I also like thinking about form and literary purpose and literary brilliance and things like plot and characterization, which didn't particularly come into these two figures, but I love all that stuff too. And looking at Montaigne and Pascal, the form of their philosophizing was absolutely crucial to the content. Montaigne coined the notion of the essay, an attempt in French, and Pascal wrote in fragments. And in different ways for both of these writers, their form of their writing was to do with either a performance of, or as it were, a genuine internalized need for piety before God. So avoiding any appearance of completion or perfection in one's own humanistic thinking. And I just loved all that. It's like, wow, really? Do I have permission to write essays about both of these things at the same time? Thinking about the context philosophers are writing in, the constraints on them, thinking about their own philosophical ideas in the context of their faith or their humanism. And this was absolutely wonderful. And that conversation with Terence Cave that stays with me forever as a, as a, as a reminder about some of the sort of madnesses of one's own subject and also the differences between a literary attitude and an analytic philosophical attitude. We talked about Wittgenstein's writing in fragments in comparison with Pascal and I commented that you know in my undergraduate study of Wittgenstein there wasn't really an opportunity to think about the significance of the fragmentation and whether that was part of the content and what might be involved in paying proper philosophical attention to the form and this this inspired Professor Cave to then tell the anecdote of his horror at discovering that two scholars of Wittgenstein 
in his college, indeed, who shall remain unnamed, that their idea of explicating and interpreting Wittgenstein was to cut up the fragments and rearrange them and see if they could put them in a better order. And to, of course, anyone with a literary mindset, this was like, this is an utterly horrific piece of violence to a text. And yet, apparently, it's what philosophers blithely think they're supposed to be doing all the time. And this just always stayed with me as a, as a wonderful kind of cartoon of what analytic philosophers think they're doing on the one hand the violence to a text and as it were that perhaps one might say from the other point of view a kind of preciousness about an individual's text that a literary attitude might bring along and I don't know I, I like both and perhaps there's a balance to be found but that was a lesson that has always stayed with me it's hard to say exactly what the lesson is but it's a an idea about the different personalities and attitudes towards form and text that are involved in these two two disciplines so thank you Terence Cave for that I mean I really liked the idea you gave of the form of Montaigne and Pascal's writing being deliberate imperfection and so one thing that's going on in that anecdote is the idea of the the philosopher saying yeah I, I think I can improve on this I think I can do a little better this <laughs> it reminds me of my only encounter with Elizabeth Anscombe was she was giving a talk at a kind of Wittgenstein memorial event and she was talking about teaching in the US and a student saying to her they were doing Plato the student said I think what Plato is trying to say here is and Anscombe said what Plato is trying to say what Plato is trying to say <laughs> if Plato wanted to say something he would have said it and I thought that's not entirely fair to the poor undergraduate but I see what you're there's a kind of refusal of the form and a, a kind of desire to extract the the real core of it so who were the other three you said there were there were four teachers well, if I may and I, I perhaps I, I'll be much quicker about the others but Briefly, Anne Seller was a wonderful philosopher, feminist philosopher, who taught me when I did a women's studies MA at the University of Kent. So I didn't, I didn't certainly didn't plan to go on to do graduate work in philosophy, but I had, by the end of my undergraduate degree, had developed a real interest in feminism, a sort of both intellectual and personal political interest in feminism. And after doing an awful lot of secretarial temping for a year, I did a women's studies MA and funded that through continued secretarial temping. And it was just great. It was interdisciplinary and I loved all the women who taught us there, and it was a very free space, fraught space sometimes, but Anne Seller exposed us to the feminist philosophy that existed, some of the feminist philosophy that existed in the world, and it made me think, oh, these are fascinating questions. It was manifestly a very early developing literature, but her whole attitude to, I don't know, a kind of uh, intellectual freedom engagement in the world. She was also just personally such a lovely example. She was full of laughter and the joy of thinking. So thank you, Anne Seller, for that. She sadly died a few months ago, but uh, I remember her dearly and lovingly. And she it was a great, she had a, in rather a wonderfully old-fashioned lefty style on her blackboard as we had in her in her room as we'd sit around talking about standpoint theory or whatever it might be. I always used to notice my eyes would glance up and a, a, as a little banner across the top of her blackboard, she had question authority. <laughs> and it was such a nice, uh, such a gentle, she was very gentle and yet persistent and sharp and yet in some ways kind of somewhat alienated from her discipline, I think, you know, fed up with a lot of philosophy and much more interested in feminism. And she was one of the women who'd set up that first, I think, first women's studies program in the UK, I believe. But question authority was such a wonderful, gentle, courteous, yet utterly persistent slogan. <laughs> so I remember that. Thank you, Ansela. And the other two are my two PhD supervisors, Sabina Loverbond 
and Bernard Williams. And Sabina Loverbond was such an inspiration. She was the reason I applied to go back to Oxford to write a feminist philosophy doctorate. She was a pioneer working in this area, writing brilliant papers about feminism and postmodernism and, and remains such an incredibly nuanced thinker with a fabulous wry sense of humour that occasionally comes through in her text. And you notice it especially much if you know her personally, her precision, her daring, her modesty and her dutifulness and care as a supervisor stay with me now. And how, how I love her work, I mean, especially the Wittgensteinian aspect of her work for me. I mean, her early book, Realism and Imagination Ethics, was a real game changer for me in understanding the significance of Wittgensteinian ethics and ethical formation too. It's a hard book to read, but brilliant book. But she's also written a book on Iris Murdoch, as you may know more recently, although she's retired. So she remains an inspiration. And I really love the density of her philosophical prose. And then Bernard Williams, who became a second supervisor, probably in my second year or something like that. I think Sabina must have been going on leave. And so there was a question, who would supervise me while she was away? And I think Bernard at that point just returned from being full-time at Berkeley and was now alternating between the two. So he kindly took me on. You know, I, I had this project about feminism and postmodernism and why the ultra-relativism of postmodernism was a false friend to feminism. We'd, we'd be better off embracing some kind of epistemic pluralism instead. And really not up his street particularly, but he very kindly just sort of said, oh, all right then, <laughs> and helped me and just took the project on its merits and helped me immensely. And it's very strange because um, actually at that time, I didn't really do much ethics. Whereas the influence of Sabina on me was very real and present at the time and continues, the influence on me of Bernard's written work has just grown and grown. Well, that I think this leads us pretty naturally into question three from the pretty diverse range of influences doing philosophy in different ways to the question, do you think there's progress in philosophy? And if so, what form does it take? Yes, I, I certainly think it's possible to make progress in philosophy. And, and actually, I think we have made progress in philosophy. I think in the past 20 years has been a pretty good period for a lot of philosophy. I suppose there's a very abstract question, you know, what is progress in philosophy? And people sometimes discuss this sometimes in terms of a comparison, usually a disparaging comparison with science. Most, most of the time when people are drawn to make comparisons between philosophy and science, they're going to be disparaging. <laughs> and that just shows that one really shouldn't do it. They're very different sorts of enterprises. And the way in which philosophy tends to come off badly when make, people make this comparison in relation to progress is that whereas science, you get a kind of net gain of knowledge and know-how, it's not at all clear that we get that in philosophy. But of course, so what? What we get in philosophy, if we're lucky in a given epoch of philosophy, is more interesting philosophy, more philosophical explanation, more philosophical understanding of perhaps a wider range of phenomena from perhaps a wider range of perspectives, including a wider range of social perspectives. It's, it's all about how interesting is the subject? How well are we doing in continually re-equipping our discipline with the tools it needs and the perspectives it needs and the, as it were, collateral social experience it needs to make sense of a shared world. And we're never going to have a subject that makes really good sense of a shared world unless we have a diverse population of people bringing diverse social experiences and perspectives to it. So there's an awfully, awfully long way to go. But I think we've made a certain amount of progress on 
expanding our conception of the philosophical. I mean, going back to the project of epistemic injustice, but you know, many other people have been doing similar sorts of projects, and feminist philosophy has been insisting on it from the start. Philosophy of race insists on it. Philosophy in all its subject areas needs to ask itself how well equipped it is to make sense of our place on earth and, as it were, human society. And I think the relevance of that question, certainly to philosophy of language, certainly to epistemology, certainly to ethics and political philosophy, certainly to metaphysics, really is being asked much more and recognised as a central, not marginal, philosophical question. Whereas when I was a graduate student, trying to ask that sort of question, even in epistemology, you just sort of got looked at blankly and thought you must be on the margins of some sociological, maybe feminist, political conversation. But that kind of urgency of making sense of our shared world is now, I think, much more at the centre of our discipline, and and that looks like progress to me. Well, maybe I will connect this idea of understanding or making sense in a distinctive philosophical form, at least a form that's different from the cumulative acquisition of factual and practical knowledge and science to question four, and maybe this will, we can think about different modes of understanding. Because I wanted to ask you, is there a work of art that you love in part for its philosophical depth? Yes. So um, two works come really instantly to mind for me. One is the work of art of which I featured a detail on the cover of my book, Epistemic Injustice. And it's a detail from a sculpture by the British artist Rachel Whiteread. It's called Stack Untitled. And I think the one I've got is from 1999. And it was just perfect for my project. And I loved it anyway. I remember going and seeing a a bunch of them, I forget which gallery, and being kind of uh, very moved by their strange presence in the huge white gallery. What they are is, imagine a library book stack or bookshelf stuffed with books, multicolored books with their different colored spines. Imagine sectioning off one, one of those, so it's a freestanding book stack, and you cover it in white plaster. And so you've got a big smudgy block of white plaster all over the front and going in the cracks between the books a little bit and then round the edge of the wooden bookcase itself. And you wait for it to dry and you take that off and then you look inside. What you see is the negative space around where the books were, plus white plaster into which has bled the colour from the multicoloured spines of the books. And so when you first look, certainly in the detail that's featured on the cover of the book, you kind of vaguely think you kind of see bookshelf, but you kind of register it's not really a bookshelf. And then you just open the book and you don't look any further. I, I Only one, once or twice have I ever explained to people what the cover image is of. But it was perfect because, of course, my whole book project was about the negative space that is epistemic injustice and how you don't really see that there's a space of epistemic justice at all unless you start looking at the dysfunctions that are manifest injustices. And then you come to see that the domain of operation where we are, even from the point of view of analytic epistemology, where we are functioning as inquirers and givers of knowledge and interpreters of our social experience is a domain in which power and prejudice operates and affects the statuses that people are given. So it's a kind of known knowledge, unknown knowledge kind of contrast. And I, I really loved her her work. She does lots of these negative spaces, as, as others may well know. And I, I find them very, very beautiful and poetic. So that's that's one. What was the other? What was the other work of art? The other one is something that happened much more 
recently, um, maybe it's two years ago now, pandemic has kind of blurred my sense of time, but I was invited by Doris Salcido, the the Colombian uh, sculptor who lives in Bogotá, to go and do a talk on sexual violence and testimonial injustice in a series of talks that was being initiated by her and others in a project called Fragmentos. And she had, in the peace accord at the end of 50 plus years of civil war in Colombia, was marked by Salcido with an incredible installation right in the centre of Bogotá in the government district which is made out of the melted guns that were handed in in the armistice to the UN. And the UN delivered them to Salcido to melt them all down. And she made, with a large team of women who had been victims of sexual assault in the years of the Civil War, this massive metal floor installation. And the women who included many women who are part of something called the network of women victims and professionals who are a campaigning group working with UN and other groups in Bogota to bring to far greater visibility and accountability the horrifying levels of sexual violence that were perpetrated during the civil war. Salcido worked with them as a kind of collective artist to bash out the metal molds that were used to make the vast floor tiles from the molten metal of the guns that had been melted down. And so you've got this incredible monument right in the government district of Bogota, which is the floor. You know, so I went there and I gave this talk after a a very moving and difficult talk to follow. I don't mind saying this is by far the most difficult talk I've ever done in my life because I was twinned with a fantastic campaigner and victim. They prefer to use the word victim, not survivor. They want to be recognized as victims of crimes. That is the the terms in which they prefer to put their campaign. Ludelena Perez, who gave her talk first and with whom I'd spoken earlier in the day, along with two other victims who told me their stories and we held hands and I listened to what they were saying with a translator. And then Ludelena told her story to the whole audience in this room where we're all standing on the sculpture that is the mold made from the molten metal of the guns. And then you know, I had, to tell, I had to say, hey, and now I've got some philosophy for you. <laughs> so I had to make sure, I don't know if I succeeded or not, but the task was to be able to follow Ludelena's compelling and deeply upsetting personal story of being the victim of sexual crime with some philosophy that was thought to be useful. Now, the, the reason I've been invited was because that campaigning group and people at the UN were using my work. Bear in mind, a lot of the victims of sexual violence and a lot of the people that this campaigning group and the UN are working with are women living outside Bogota in the villages. And they were very largely prime victims of these sorts of crimes because they were vulnerable. So you'd have a militia sweep up and say everyone out of this village in 24 hours or else. And the the violence would include a lot of sexual violence. And these women, many of them had no very little formal education, so often could not write, for instance, to fill out any forms of crime reporting and so on. And so the obstacles to being able to protest the crimes committed against them are enormous in every way. But it seems that they also regard the obstacles as partly conceptual. And so standing, and I did know this before I gave the talk, I think otherwise I wouldn't have really known I could say, yes, it would be too much of an impossible situation. But standing on Salcido's incredible monument floor in those rooms, in that place, with those people, and following on from Ludelena Perez's talk, and with 
so many members of that campaigning group and UN group all there was an extraordinary feeling. You could feel the energy from the artwork you know, the rising up and it was a powerful unifying thing which helped me feel like maybe I did have a place in giving this silly little bit of philosophy talk in the face of all this horrifying trauma because they told me they found it useful and Doris had told me she found it useful and it was all integrated in the space we were in by her artwork that they had made collectively. That's an amazing story. I mean, I, I guess I want to ask a, a kind of question. Maybe I can make this more abstract about how you think about the relationship between the kind of understanding, or whether it is understanding, that those works of art give us and philosophical understanding. I mean, is it understanding of the same kind, but in a, a different mode? Or is it something quite different from un, the kind of understanding that philosophers aspire to? It's a great question. I, I, I really don't know the answer, of course. But I one thing I do think, and I feel fairly confident of, is that like philosophy, art is fantastically disunified and diverse. And I think sometimes some artworks deliver kinds of understanding that are very close to the kinds of understanding some philosophy delivers. So I don't feel they're, I wouldn't want to kind of put them in completely different camps. But on the other hand, I do think it's true, perhaps, I, I think certain contrasts, as broad contrasts are helpful. So one contrast that is very much in my mind in connection with that piece by Salcedo because of its compression. And there it is, as gravity is all the compression of the pressing of the metal, the guns having already been melted into it, us all standing on it. It felt like that piece was this compressed, heavy, solidifying energy from which could emanate all sorts of things to us as we think about it and we perhaps unpack what is compressed into it. Philosophy kind of works in the other direction, at least analytic philosophy does. I mean, one tries all the time to have already unpacked everything before you put it on the page. That's one's job, as it were, explicitation. <laughs> and I think it would be really good if we thought very carefully about which things are worth explicitating and which things really aren't. Because I think sometimes, because we're kind of good at explicitating, we just make everything terribly explicit and there's really no need. It's okay for some things to be off stage, But our job is to have already unpacked it all before we then lay it out on the page. And there's an art to that if we, in, in the selection and in, in emphasis and in, as it were, how we shape an overall article. But it's a very different art, I think. And so one, one useful contrast, but as it were, to be taken with a massive pinch of salt is a contrast between expansion and compression. And certainly in the case of Salcedo's piece and what I was trying to do in that talk, those were the two opposite energies going on in the room. Well, there are so many more questions we could talk about there, but I think I have to move on to the final question, the second Iris Murdoch-inspired question, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote, what is she afraid of? So what are you afraid of? <laughs> I'm so not going to tell anyone what I'm afraid of. That could be a personal question, or I'm going to take it as the philosophical question that Murdoch's dealing with. And you know, she's thinking there about philosophers being afraid of trying to theorize the good in a way that shows that it's meaningful, but then discovering with despair that it isn't meaningful and so on. There's another kind of what are you afraid of in philosophy that's a very useful 
question to ask when one's reading someone. You know, very often people try to steer a middle course between Scylla and Charybdis or you know, two ditches on either side. You don't want to fall into either of them. I feel like that a lot of the time doing moral philosophy is a metaethical Scylla and Charybdis. It's to do with avoiding moralism on one side in all its forms. There are many forms of moralism, no doubt. And nihilism on the other, where the form of nihilism that I have in mind and that constantly threatens anything I try to do is a kind of anything goes relativism. And I'm just calling it nihilism because it's a more, more of a proper contrast with moralism, it seems to me, and because there are many kinds of relativism, which I don't regard as anywhere near nihilistic. But that's, I'm afraid of falling into one or another of those ditches. On the one hand, some writing about blame and forgiveness a lot these days. And on the one hand, I want to be a a champion of a certain kind of blame, a very minimalist, if you like, rather uncensorious, but frank kind of blame. And yet I find many others who write about blame or want to be champions of blame have a much more moralistic conception of it, a much more punitive conception of it than I do. So for instance, there are many writers who think that, and take it kind of as obvious, that blame is basically a retributive response. And therefore, any kind of justified blame needs to be a justification of deliberately imposing a harm on somebody else. I just don't think that at all. I don't think blaming someone need be a harm. I think blaming someone is finding fault with someone perhaps oneself, for one's conduct in some way, and that this can be the best thing that happens to them that day. <laughs> I might learn from your blaming me that I'm doing something wrong, and I, I need to know that. I don't think you're harming me. You're doing me a favor. Now, of course, there can be all sorts of retributive kinds of blame. There's no question there can be retributive blame. And often we'll fall into it. We're dragged into deteriorated forms of our own practice. But my interest is in outlining a non-punishing, morally progressive, useful, but frank, sometimes angry, sometimes furious kind of blame that will not be moralistic. But I'm constantly finding, oh dear, what I'm sound what I'm sounding like as I'm writing is someone who wants to go around punishing everyone. So I, you know, I'm scared of that. I'm scared of discovering I I wind up in a position that I don't want to be in. Well maybe we'll end with the idea of striving to avoid extremes and find the the mean between them. And I'll say Thank you, Miranda, for appearing on the podcast. Thanks so much, Kieran. It's been really a pleasure. Miranda Fricker is Professor of Philosophy at the City University of New York Graduate Center and the author of Epistemic Injustice, Power and the Ethics of Knowing. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>